For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, so we're in the book of Matthew. Now, to get some context, some of you were here with us during the series, uh, but that was like two months ago, and then some of you haven't. Just to put us in the mind frame of where we are in the gospel of Matthew, right? So many of uh, the passages that we studied were on the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus's wisdom and advice on how to live a good life in this life. One of the really cool things about the Sermon on the Mount is it's just really good practical wisdom, how to get God better, how to love each other better. And the point, you know, some people have this conception of the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, and it's like, what does it mean to be blessed? What What the word blessed means is to be fulfilled. You can have a fulfilled life in this life by understanding the way that God is and letting him change the way that you think and the way that you treat other people and the way that you see the world. Then we talked about Jesus' healing ministry. This is something that a lot of people know that the Bible claims that Jesus did these incredible miracles. But we talked about what does it mean, right? It helps us see that God, you know, when you're studying a gospel, which is like the first four books of the New Testament, you're looking at biographies of Jesus by eyewitnesses. And the claim is, is that Jesus is God come to live and dwell among us. So as you're reading through God's biography of his time living like we live in the midst of the human condition, you can look at Jesus and you can learn so much about the character and the nature of God. And one of the things that Jesus was really into was helping people who are in need. Looking at suffering and wanting to do something about it. Demonstrating compassion and love. Moving toward people who were often outcast by society whether it was physical disabilities or whether it was uh, a sinful lifestyle, the people that Jesus moved toward again and again and again were the people who felt like they didn't fit in, the people who society as a whole tended to judge and discard. And then we talked about how also the fact that Jesus could look at someone and say, be healed, pick up your mat and walk. And somebody that was born paralyzed would be able to do that was a way of God authenticating his message, saying the power of God is behind the teaching of this person. You can trust that what he says is from God and have confidence that he's not a fraud. So where we are right now is the popularity of Jesus is growing as throughout uh, Jerusalem and Israel, and he's kicking up quite a stir. And he's sort of this countercultural, not like the religious elite, not like the, the Pharisees and the priests and the Sadducees, the people of his day that were very religious but not very warm and not very compassionate. Jesus is gathering a following of people that are beginning to listen to him, and he's becoming critical. He's critiquing the religions of men. And the Pharisees in particular, the Pharisees were the sect of Judaism that was in charge of running the synagogues. They're the rabbis and the priests that were predominant in Jesus' day. They're looking at him and they're like, you didn't pay your dues, dude. You're not one of us. You're not with the program. What you're saying is hurting our following. And yet he's becoming increasingly critical and confrontational 
about the traditions of men, while he's always very consistent with the Word of God, with the Bible. And so we get to Matthew chapter 12, and we see that it's the Sabbath, which for the Jews was a Saturday, right? It's supposed to be a day of rest and relaxation, and they're walking through a field. And they're walking through the grain fields, and his disciples become hungry, and they start to pick the little kernels of wheat, the heads of grain there, and they start just popping them in their mouths. And the Pharisees see this, and they say to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So the sin police come in. I don't know what the Pharisees are doing in a grain field, you know. <laughs> Apparently, they're, they're literally, like, following Jesus, waiting for something that they can, like, accuse him of, you know, which I don't know, you know, that experience would be very interesting. You're just walking around, and there's, like, guys with a notebook just watching you, you know. What are you doing? And they call him out because the Sabbath is supposed to be a day where you don't work. And apparently from their perspective, taking a little kernel of wheat from a field as you walk through it is harvesting. And that's work. And that's not allowed according to the law of God. The problem was not that they were eating grain from someone else's field. We might be like, well, yeah, what about that? Aren't they kind of technically, I mean, it's a small amount, but aren't they stealing grain? Is that an issue here? And we learn in Deuteronomy 23-25, this was actually allowed. This was God's provision, one of the ways that God was providing for the poor of the people of Israel was, you were allowed to pick some grain from a field if you were hungry. It's just something you could do. He says, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads within your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So he's like, listen, if you're hungry, grab a snack, but don't go harvesting all your neighbor's wheat and being like, it's mine. And again, okay, this is one of God's laws, right? But we see the nature and character of God in his laws. He cares about the poor. He also cares about the farmer. And so what he puts together here is something that's pretty reasonable. Grab a few heads of grain. It's not going to ruin anybody's crop. But don't be a ridiculous person and a thief. And so they're going through and they're doing this. And so the issue for the Pharisees is not that they're doing this. It's that they're doing it on the Sabbath. And from the Pharisees' point of view, they are working. They are harvesting. And you can get into Sabbath law. And what you do is you can get into the Bible, which says one thing. The first time we ever see the idea of Sabbath is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. It's in the creation of the world. God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he blessed it and he sanctified it. There's one of those real churchy words. It just means he set it apart. There was one of seven days in a week that was supposed to be set apart because in it, God rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So God said, one, one day a week, take the day off relax, and enjoy my creation the way I enjoyed my creation when I had finished making it. We see again, Scripture from Leviticus 23 saying, For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord and all your dwellings. So this was something that was actually important to God. He wanted, you know, we are in a society where we have a five-day work week and we think, like, that's, that's ridiculous right there, 40 hours a week, right? But in the ancient world, especially if you were a farmer, which a lot of the society that we're dealing with here is agrarian, it was like you worked every day or you didn't eat. 
you wanted to have a day off, you had to store up enough for during the week so that you didn't have to harvest or you didn't have to gather your food for that day. And God's saying, do that. Take a day, be with your family, spend time with me, enjoy my creation, and rest, relax. That sounds pretty good. But the question for the Pharisees, for the religious-minded person in this scenario is, God said don't work on the Sabbath. Well, what does work mean? You see, the religious mindset wants to look at the rules and say, okay, you know, the person who has the strictest interpretation of the rules is the most spiritual person, right? It's sort of this competition to see who is holier, who is more upstanding. And it's like, oh, I notice you're picking grains of wheat on the Sabbath. You know, I don't even do that. I'm very much into following God. So I don't do any work on the Sabbath. And then someone else is like, oh, yeah. Like, well, what work can I stop doing? And it becomes this competition of who can define the strictest definition of what work is. We shall not work on the Sabbath. We're supposed to rest. But what defines it? Well, you can read the writings of the rabbis of Jesus' time, the Pharisees of Jesus' time, and they identify 39 kinds of work forbidden on the Sabbath. You can read about this in the Shabbat, chapter 7, verse 2, to beginning with. So one type of work was called selecting. Let me read to you from the Shabbat. Selecting, in the Talmudic sense, usually refers exclusively to the separation of debris from grain, i.e. to any separation of intermixed materials, which renders, which renders edible that which was inedible. Thus, filtering undrinkable water to make it drinkable falls under this category, as does picking small bones from fish. Also, weaving was forbidden during the Sabbath. And weaving was defined as if you create two loops from a string, you are working. If you are weaving at least two threads together, that is weaving, that is work, that is forbidden under Pharisaical law. And of course, you can't separate two strings. Your sweater has a little little dangly thing and you pull that out. You're working, you're violating Sabbath law, you're weaving, and you should be judged. Another type of work is transferring between domains. There are 11 chapters on the issue of transferring between domains. The tractate distinguishes four domains. There's the private domain, the public domain, the semi-public domain, and the exempt area. And so if you're going to follow the Sabbath law and not work, you have to get up on your 11 chapters on what it means to transfer something from one type of domain to another type of domain. It reads, it holds that transfer of an article from a private to a public domain is biblically forbidden. Transferring an article between a semi-public to a private and public or public domain is rabbinically prohibited. And transferring of an article between an exempt area and any other domain is permissible. So you need a law degree from Harvard to understand what it is to, what is allowed and what is not allowed. Now think about this. Remember, what was God's intent behind the law? Rest. Does this sound like rest? Isn't the traditions of men taking the word of God and turning it into a burden when it's supposed to be a freedom? 
And we see that a lot in religion. It's not just the Pharisees who do this. It says, carrying an article out of a domain and returning to the same domain with it does not constitute transferring. So if you take something out of your house and bring it back to your house, you're good. However, this may fall into the category of wearing, which is another topic with many more chapters associated with it. Do you see the point? This is the mentality of the people who are watching Jesus. It's a beautiful day. They're out walking around. They grab a few kernels of grain. They pop them in their mouth. And they're like, you're working on the Sabbath. So Jesus isn't going to take this lying down. He's like, really? Okay. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow the camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup of the dish and the inside are full of self-indulgence. This was the kind of comment that Jesus often made about the Pharisees. And you can see after understanding how it is that the Pharisees think about these things, the fact that they miss so much, you know, to us even straining the gnat and swallowing the camel, what's that talking about? It's like you're looking in your cup and there's a little gnat and you get the gnat out before you drink the water. That makes sense. But he's like, but you forgot about the camel, the giant, disgusting, furry animal that's obviously in your way, right? He's like, you get into the minutia of what is work on the Sabbath, but you forget about where is your heart before God? What is your relationship with God like? This is the primary difference between what Jesus is doing in his teachings and what the Pharisees were doing in theirs. So he was regularly critical towards these guys saying, you know, guys, look at my teaching. I'm talking about loving God. I'm talking about loving one another. Yes, live a moral life. He tells plenty of people to stop sinning and and get right with God. He's not just like, I'm okay, you're okay. He's like, yeah, there is such a thing as wrong behavior. And we should stop doing that. But a relationship with God isn't about what you don't do. A relationship with God is about what you do. And these Pharisees were watching him very carefully because he was gaining followers. And he was teaching like this. And yet the blind were being given sight. The lame were healed. A thousand years of prophecy were fulfilled. That's the camel. These huge things are happening And all the Pharisees can see is he's picking wheat on the Sabbath, which means he's breaking God's law and working. Now, I was pretty hard on the Pharisees there, sharing their stuff. But, you know, there are modern-day Pharisees. And a lot of them are called Christians. Institutional American Christians, you know, have continued this process. This isn't a Jewish thing. This isn't a Pharisee thing. This is a human thing. Right, And so we can be followers and worshipers of Jesus Christ and be like, oh yeah, I follow Jesus. But when following the rules goes before caring about their meaning, we become much more like the Pharisees than we become like Jesus. And I think a lot of 21st century Christian Americans fall, look more like the Pharisees than they do like Jesus. You know, there are people that are like, you have to go to church on Sunday. Why? Because I'm a Christian. And it's like, why? Why is, why, why is church attendance such an important thing? Now, that might seem oddly contradictory given I'm up here on a Sunday morning 
telling you about this. But why are you here? That's the question. Are you here because that's what Christians do? Are you here because if you don't come, someone will notice that you missed and be like, somebody's carnal and sleeping in. Are you here because of what people think? Are you here because you're afraid that God will be mad at you if you're not here? Are you here because this is what you always do? And it's just the way that it's done, and you would feel shame and guilt if you didn't come this morning. Why do we do what we do? You know, a lot of churches, they pass hats, right? And it's like you're sitting there, and the hat's coming by, and you're like, oh. You know, and you feel that pressure, like, I'm going to put money in the hat, because I don't want to see people... I don't want people to see me not putting money in the hat. So why are you giving your money to the church? Is it from shame? Is it from guilt? Is it from a sense of obligation? That's what Jesus called the leaven of the Pharisees. A lot of Christians you talk to talk about keeping impure influences away. Now, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so I didn't have any of this. But as I became a Christian and then started meeting Christians... One of the most interesting things to talk to them about, like when you're hanging out, is what was your childhood like? And there are people from these extreme backgrounds that are like, you know, well, I wasn't allowed to do this. I wasn't allowed to listen to that. I wasn't allowed to watch this. You know, uh, there was never any alcohol in our house. We weren't allowed to play cards. You know, like they define their childhood by the things that they weren't allowed to do. One of the best ones I ever heard was about He-Man. A friend of mine... I was talking to him, and I was, I was exploring this with him. And I was like, so what weren't you allowed to watch? And he was like, the thing I really wanted to watch that all my friends were watching was He-Man. But I was not allowed to watch He-Man because he is not the master of the universe. <laughs> I mean, what sounds more like Sabbath law than this kind of thing? And that got me interested. I got online and I just started, there's all these like self-help groups. If I grew up in a conservative Christian home and here are the things that I wasn't allowed to do. We were not allowed to watch Beauty and the Beast because it promoted bestiality. I watched all the other Disney movies but did not watch that one until my brother stood up to my dad and explained it was a fairy tale like Snow White and it was not, it was illogical reasoning. I'm just imagining an eight-year-old like, Dad! Let us watch Beauty and the Beast. I'm not going to start a relationship with the dog. You know, like, come on. A lady at our church wouldn't pronounce the name of Jean-Claude Van Damme because she didn't want to swear. These are real. Like, I have heard these stories, you know, that there are people that are, they were raised under this sort of minutia of, you know, Keep yourself from impure things, okay? But what does that mean? How do we interpret that? And the leaven of the Pharisees is alive and well. Modern day Pharisee says, I do these things because I want to show people that I'm a spiritual person. It's theater, right? They have real issues in their lives. Real things that are hurting them, real sin, real moral problems, but they don't talk about that. They talk about, I don't watch He-Man, so I'm a good person. And then what does that say? How does that represent the God of the Bible to those who don't know him when they think these are the most important things? Righteous appearances take precedent over thinking, over reason. And we end up making God and Jesus 
we completely misrepresent the beauty and the amazing reality of who they are and make them look like unreasonable cops. Over against that is Jesus' way, which is not the religious mindset. It's not the legalistic mindset. It's a relational mindset. The rules are guides that help me grow. The Sabbath is for rest, for family, for replenishment, for relating to God. We relate to God every day. God should be an everyday part of our lives. But let's take one day and spend more time with Him. Not because we have to, but because we want to. We go to Bible studies because we want to learn more about the Word of God. We want to be around other people who are going to help us and encourage us and challenge us. We want to build relationships with each other. We want to connect and we have, want to have a, a place that we can bring our friends who don't know God where they can hear good teaching. We give our money to God's work because we believe in the power of God and, the, and we want to do something about the suffering in the world. We don't just put money in the hat when it passes us by to make sure that we have the correct appearance, but we give deeply and generously out of what matters because we believe in the work that could be accomplished with that money. We think critically about influences that oppose God's teaching. Yeah. Impure influences, we should think about that. We should be able to think critically and critique that. Kevin Smith has a new He-Man on Netflix. I encourage you to watch it, but be critical. Do not be fooled into believing that He-Man is the master of the universe. <laughs> There's all kinds of things that we can use as examples with those things. So the Pharisees bust Jesus and his disciples, his disciples out because they're gleaning weed on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry and his companions? How he entered the house of God and how they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat for those with him, but for the priests alone. You get this? They're following him around and they're writing in their notebooks and they're like, mm -mm -mm, harvesting on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, do you even know the Bible? Have you, have you read the Bible? Have you not read? He's like, you're the religious teachers, you're the rabbis, you're the spiritual authorities. Let's go to Scripture, is what he says. Let me explain to you what the Bible says. First Samuel 21, David's on the run, Saul's trying to kill him, and they've been on the run for so long, and they have no provisions, and they're beginning to starve. And David remembers the temple, the, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, right, where they're supposed to go. They bake bread there every day. It's part of God's law. I always thought that was fascinating. God's house is supposed to always smell like fresh baked bread. <laughs> Isn't that cool? And it's a symbol of provision for the people. They, break, they, they bake 12 loaves, right, every day for the 12 tribes of Israel. And the, only the priests, according to the law of God, are allowed to eat this bread. It's special. It's for the priests. And David's like, we should go get some of that bread. And so he goes, and they're starving, and they're like, please, can we have some bread? And they're like, okay, just this once. You know, you're starving. You can eat the bread. Even though David is not a Levite, he's not a priest. He's from the tribe of Judah, the, the king tribe. 
But starving trumps the law of the ceremony in this particular case. And you can see why Jesus brings it up, right? Your own Bible that you're supposed to be the experts of know that there's principles behind what God has said. His point to the teachers of his day is, no, it wasn't lawful for David and his men to eat the bread. But David was justified because God didn't want him to starve. Isn't that interesting? He goes on with his Bible study to the Bible teachers. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Oh, that one would hit home. Why? These are the priests that he's talking to. And he's like, last time I checked in my word, you work on the Sabbath. In fact, it's your busiest day of the week. Numbers 28, 9 through 10 shows that the offering and work of the priest actually doubles on the Sabbath. They work twice as much on the Sabbath. They're exempted because they're priests. That's their day, right? But Jesus is making the point, you work on the Sabbath. So why are you the Sabbath police about plucking a head of grain as we walk through a field? I think it's interesting to notice, too, both the examples that Jesus gives pertain to the temple, right? The showbread was for the temple. The work of the priests is at the temple. So he picks two examples from Scripture that explain and and illustrate his point, and they're both from the temple. And then he says this, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Now, you and I probably read that and we're like, that's a weird thing to say. I don't get it, right? But to the Pharisees, this is like, This is like what Jesus just did is so much worse than than gathering grain on the Sabbath. He just said he is greater than the temple. This is blasphemy in their eyes. And it would be blasphemy unless it was true. And so he elevates the situation. He's like, "You you guys really need to read your Bible more. And you need to understand what the Bible means, and you need to understand what the law means, and you need to understand who I am. You don't know who you're dealing with, right? He says it's okay that David ate the bread. It's okay for priests to work. But he's not saying the law is wrong. He's saying we have to understand the principles behind the law. And by the way, the one who's teaching you here is actually the author of these laws. When I give you an interpretation of the law, it's not like my idea. It's like the author telling you what his intent was. So you can trust that I know what I'm talking about. He goes on and he clarifies. He says, but if you had known what this means, if you had understood the Bible at all, And then he quotes Hosea 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. Right? So he's still pounding away at these Bible teachers with the truth of the word. He's saying, don't you understand that it wasn't about sacrifice? You got to understand the difference between the letter of the law and the principle behind it. That's what he's talking about here. The principle of the law 
People in the Old Testament knew there was this whole sacrificial system, and it bums us out as 21st century Americans because we're like, why did they kill animals you know, that were so innocent? And it's like, that is actually the point. God agrees. Like, that's sad. It's sad that they killed the animals who didn't deserve it. Right? But that it wasn't that God is bloodthirsty, like I love to bathe in the blood of animals, you know? <laughs> it's that our rebellion against God is that serious. And the only answer for us, other than the judgment of God, is that something innocent and cute and fluffy that doesn't deserve to die has to take our place. That is exactly the point of the ceremony. It's not that people are actually made right with God because they killed a little baby lamb. It's that they will be made right with God because Jesus Christ, who is completely innocent, died so he could take the judgment that we deserve upon ourselves. Sacrifice did not forgive sin. Jesus knew this. The prophets of the Old Testament knew this. David knew this. It was a means to teach them about how to have a relationship with him. You have got to call out to God and recognize, I have problems. I'm selfish. I lie. I use people. I manipulate. I mean, it's easy for us to look out at the rest of the world and be like, well, I'm maybe in the top 50% in terms of people who don't do bad. But compared to God, compared to what's right, compared to what's good, compared to what's perfect, I fall so far short. I need, I'm in desperate need of help. God, will you forgive me and help me to become a person who is able to love, who is able to sacrifice themselves? Will you help me become somebody who considers the needs of others as more important than myself? And that comes through a relationship with God, not a ritual. David in Psalm 51 wrote, O oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The point of the whole thing and the whole world and our whole lives is to bring us to that breaking point where we cry out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? I have problems. That's what God wants us to realize. That's what the law does, is it shows us that we have problems, and it creates a teachable heart. That's its purpose. The law teaches us about the character of God, the heart of God, the will of God. It shows us what right and wrong are. It teaches us about morality, but it is insufficient as a means of a relationship. You can learn about God through the law, but you can't come to know God. That requires a personal act of faith on your part. I've been teaching in this fellowship for 20 years. There's hundreds of teachings that have been recorded that you can listen to online. You can listen to all of them, but, and you could learn a lot about me, both good and bad, by listening to those teachings. But it doesn't mean we're in a relationship. In order for a relationship to happen, we would have to meet and have a conversation. 
So you can read the law of God and you can learn about who he is, but at some point you've got to cry out. You've got to call to God and say, I want you in my life. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to that which was later revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through Christ Jesus. The law teaches us about God. It teaches us about our shortcomings. But the next step, the ball is in your court. Once you come to that realization, I need help. You've got to turn and call out to God. You know, little kids, you know, another way of saying what Paul just said in Galatians is little kids need black and white rules. But as we grow up, it's helpful to begin to learn and think in terms of principles, not necessarily rules. Let me give you an example a famous rule from the Old Testament. Thou shall not kill. Pretty black and white, right? And so that's a good thing to teach a child. Don't kill stuff, right? Just don't do it, right? But as they get older, you know, is killing always wrong? So does that mean it's wrong to fight for your country? Does it, it's wrong to join the armed services? As a Christian, can I do that? Is it wrong to defend yourself and your family if someone's trying to kill your kid? Is it wrong to kill them if you have to? Like, how do I wrestle with that? Scripture calls for capital punishment in the Old Testament under certain circumstances. How do I wrestle with the act that God says, thou shalt not kill, when he sends people into war and calls for the death penalty in certain situations? How does that work? Well, now we're in more of an adult mindset, thinking about how do these things fit together And how does this actually work out in a practical way and how I should live my life? And all Jesus is telling the Pharisees in this passage that we're studying here this morning is that a black and white approach to these things falls way short of what God wants us to understand. He wants us to be adults, not children. The principle behind thou shalt not kill is of great value and murder is wrong. Yet there's no prohibition in Scripture from joining the army. In fact, there are examples of people that do. There's no prohibition from defending your loved ones. In fact, it says that we should protect the innocent. What we need to do is work out in our lives when we're faced with difficult moral decisions. We should pray. We should look at all of Scripture, not just one verse. And we should get good counsel from other people that are on the same journey. That's how we figure out the moral gray areas, when confronted with difficult life decisions. Here's a good example, a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Like I said, I've been here 25 years. Never once have any of you kissed me with a holy kiss when we come together. No one kissed me this morning. No one better kiss me as I try to leave. (laughs) Why don't we obey this law? Why don't we obey this rule? Well, it's a cultural thing. In their culture, you know, it was like the European on the cheek thing, right? We're Americans. Don't touch me. (laughs) Right? But the principle behind the law would be like, let warmly greet one another. Be affectionate to one another. You know, when you see, when you come together with fellow 
believers acknowledge and show appreciation and be encouraged. We don't follow this law to the letter, but we shouldn't ignore it either. There's something of value to be learned here. It's the same thing. Understanding the principle behind the law instead of blind black and white adherence to it. Well, back to the Sabbath issue. What's the principle behind the Sabbath? Mark 2, 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Right? This is for you. This is, this is not supposed to be a burden. This is supposed to be a joy. A day of rest, a day of reflection, a day of enjoyment, a day of relationship, a day of connecting, a day for spending time with one another. And the Pharisees and the religious mindset are concerned about the law of not working hundreds of pages. How many pages are there about how to have an awesome time with your family and God on the Sabbath? Where's the joy? Where's the love? Where's the connection? The religious mentality of men misrepresents the reality of who God is because it misses the relational principle behind it. And this is what Jesus is saying, the difference between following a religion and having a relationship. So we've poked fun at the Pharisees and we've poked fun at the institutional Christians. But what about us? Oh, well, we're all here in t-shirts and sandals and we're sipping our coffee and dwell is not legalistic. Really, we are exempt from this mentality. We would never do anything. We're the, we're the church that doesn't do that. Can't that become a law in itself that requires blind obedience and takes the joy out of what we do? Don't we need to be on guard on this as well? What is your attitude about coming to church? What was your attitude on the car on the way here this morning? Why are you here? Is it because everybody else in your home group is here? Is it because you didn't want to miss out FOMO? Is it because you are excited about learning about God and having an opportunity to connect with others? Is it because you're excited about being in a place where you can bring your friends, your coworkers? Are you worried about someone's taking attendance and and your box isn't going to have a check next to it? We are susceptible to these things. You know, we bring up devotional lives and people are like, oh, the shame. You just say devotional life. Do you get in the word with God every day? And you're like, ooh. (laughs) Or some of us are like, yes, I do. (laughs) Check. There are all kinds of ways that we can let the joy of relating to God become a chore. Sharing our faith, are we out there expressing the joy of our relationship with God or are we scalp hunting? Just looking so we can bring someone that other people will see. Oh, you brought someone. You're one of those types. You're you're up here. You know, it's hard, you know, when we talk about those things. Loving our enemies, not just in the ways that we meet them on a daily basis or we interact with them, but also online, 
You know, our world is just tearing itself apart in so many ways. Things are so desperately divided. Imagine how we could shine by showing love and compassion to people we disagree with. The opportunities are ripe. The darker things get in our culture, the more the love of God will stand out. If we will become conduits and make ourselves available to be used by God in that way. We live in a time of tremendous opportunity. Now, motives are hard, right? Sometimes coming here, going to a home group, your devotional time, it's better to just do it and grunt it out than to not do it at all. But if you're just doing it and grunting it out, it's good to work out with God. Where, where is the joy and why isn't that happening? I'm not saying don't do something just because your motives are bad. Do good things, even if your motives are bad. But worry about your motives. Turn those over to God. Be honest when you're conflicted. Share that with somebody. Pray about it. Don't pretend like you love this when you hate this, even when you know that you should love it. Be real, be honest, be authentic. And help each other work through those difficulties when Motivation lacks. The thing I'm trying to bring out here is think about where we might be missing the point. Christianity is not about restriction. It's not about what you can't do. It's about what God has done. It's about freedom. In the chapter before this, Jesus says in Matthew 11:28 through 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'll give you guys something. The way that I, a real simple way that I can know whether I'm putting myself under law and whether I'm being a Pharisee or not, is I read this verse and I'm like, yeah, right. It sure doesn't feel like that today, Jesus. And it's, It's so clear. Like, do you believe this? Are you experiencing this? Or does this seem like, "Mm, I don't know how true that is. And it's just simply a question of this. Are you grunting out the obedience? In which case, you're actually pulling against Jesus' yoke, in which case, it is not easy nor light. Or are you going with Jesus? In which case, it is effortless and joyful. And your expectation should not be that it's always going to be effortless and joyful. Doing the right thing is often hard. But it's in those moments of tension that God calls us to work those things out with him. That's what we've got. Next week we'll be in 13 talking about the parable of the soils. Thanks God that you really care and want to be close with us, that you're relational. Thanks that you've given us your word, you've given us your law to teach us about you and to teach us about what matters and and how to make good life decisions. And then thanks for your patience with us as we screw it up. We just ask that you'll protect us, that you'll help us, you'll preserve us, that you know we can we can remain and live our lives in that tension. Uh, Guard us from the the hubris of believing we've got it all figured out, Uh, but also guard us from the 
the self-recrimination of thinking we can never do anything good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.